welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. I'm Laura Robinson. And we are PhD candidates at Duke University. Today we're going to be discussing Richard Bauckham's For Whom Were the Gospels Written, published in 1999 in HTS. Laura, give us a sense of the big picture of this article. So what Richard Bauckham is responding to in this article is the idea of gospel communities. It was commonplace, especially from the 1960s on with the rise of form criticism, to see the gospels as shaped by or or even reflective of the experience of the communities in which they were written. And Richard Bauckham is taking issue with the idea that gospel communities existed at all and that gospel writers did not necessarily write for their own communities and their own situations, but wrote narratives of the life of Jesus that were broadly accessible to any Christian. Christian who would pick them up. Right. Bauckham is objecting to a tendency in scholarship which interprets the Gospels as if they were Pauline epistles, contingent addressed to a specific community, and therefore sought to use the Gospels principally as a tool or a source for reconstructing Gospel communities, early Christian communities. This is foundationally done in Sweet's work uh, on his commentary in Mark, um, and really, really influentially, Streeter discussed the four gospel communities as a way of explaining how four texts became canonical. Each one was used in a specific community, a sort of a community charter, and only later were they brought together and canonized collectively. I think Streeter even argues that it's hard to explain the canonization of Mark without that, that Mark had to have been important to to Rome or an incredibly important uh, ancient metropolis in order to be relevant at all in light of the fact that it's reproduced in almost its entirety in uh, in Luke and Matthew. Against this, Richard Bauckham argues that the Gospels are documents written for a universal purview. Um, They are written addressed to all Christians everywhere, um, and that the specifics of a community, a community's own history and current situation, he wants to argue are not Exegetically, Exegetically yeah. significant, hermeneutically. Um, the, the consequence of this is that Bauckham argues that uh, the, the situation of a community at the time that the gospel is written and the situation into which the gospel writer is, uh, is telling the story of Jesus is not actually significant for, the, for, for interpretation. He goes so far as to say that even if we could reconstruct the community in which a gospel was written, that would not be hermeneutically significant for the gospel in question. Most people who have received this article, and maybe even Bauckham himself, probably think he he goes too far in saying that origin is completely insignificant. Uh, Even if he's right with regard to gospel audiences, uh, an author's background, um, theological convictions are obviously significant for understanding the written work. So today we're going to be focusing not on that aspect of his original essay, but on the question of intended audience and what we can learn about the Gospels from that. So we're sort of selectively treating Bauckham's original article in light of its reception for today's purposes. Yeah. Uh, arguments of the essay have been altered by Bauckham himself in subsequent years. Uh, so let's, uh, in that spirit, let's talk about the ways in which Bauckham is right in the evidence in Bauckham's favor that the Gospels were written broadly for any Christian who happened to come upon them. Uh, so the first argument that I think is, it, it seems obvious, but it, it is something that needs to be made clear, is that the Gospels aren't epistles. So an epistle is obviously a very uh, community-driven genre in which a, an author writes into a specific situation 
if a community were to get the epistle that was intended for some other church, like if the Romans got the letter to the Galatians, it wouldn't necessarily be as relevant to them. And Gospels aren't the same thing. Gospels are narratives. These are far more um, accessible than an epistle. And this seems to rule against, in some sense, the idea that Gospels are written for very specific situations. It's worth noting that Gospels, sort of in the period preceding Bauckham in the late 20th century, Gospels were viewed as not of the genre of Bioi, not as ancient biographies, but as sort of sui generis works in the schools of form criticism. Stories of Jesus are created for exegetical purposes, to be programmatic and ideological for communal practices, and so are principally treated as communal works. And this is a view that has really fallen out of favor through Burridge's work and other subsequent treatments, um, including rejections of Burridge, which would argue that Gospels are closer Jewish scriptural histories. But in any case, Bioi and similar genres are not, most people agree, thinly veiled allegories for communal history, but rather narratives about the past, um, fictional and non-fictional, or however those categories map onto ancient literature, but narratives about past figures that are still certainly advancing ideological agendas, but certainly not community rules or uh, simple, straightforward allegories for a group's history or practices. Yeah. The other argument is that we have evidence that the Gospels traveled very far and fast, even across ideological boundaries in the early Christian movement. So the obvious example here is Mark. Um, that the Gospel of Mark seem, seems to have been written for a Gentile church. Some people have argued that it's in Rome because of the Latinisms in it. And this text clearly travels far enough and fast enough that Matthew is able to include almost the entire text of Mark in his own gospel. And Matthew and Mark are at completely different ends of the theological spectrum in early Christianity, in that Mark is seems to be writing for Gentiles. There's the part where he explains hand-washing, which he assumes that his audience won't understand the reference to hand-washing without explaining it. And Matthew is cl- clearly for this, um, this very Jewish community that still practices Torah in a lot of ways. If Luke uses Matthew, the, the, the Gospels, cr- again, cross the ideological barrier. Luke somehow gets a copy of this very Jewish Gospel and interprets it once again for his Gentile audience. So it seems that Gospels were traveling far enough and were widespread enough that even Christians who had massive theological differences between each other them could encounter one another's Gospels and were interpreting them. Right. So Bacham asks, what do Matthew and Luke think they're doing when they take the Gospel of Mark and rewrite it? They know Mark has gone across ideological boundaries to get to them. And so in writing new Gospels and taking over tons of material, it seems very likely that they expect their Gospels to do the same thing. It's worth noting that this happens beyond the canonical boundaries. Proto-Orthodox Church Fathers have copies of Marcion's Gospel well into the 4th century. Gospels and other works are clearly crisscrossing sectarian lines very early, and when you rewrite a text from from an opposing school, probably you're expecting your text to do the same. And Bauckham's final point is what he calls the ecumenical consciousness of the early church, that it's not realistic to think that Gospels were written for isolated communities because the early church was not made of isolated communities. It actually seems that Christians were in very good contact with each other Mm -hmm. and were uh, writing letters to each other, were traveling, um, and that most Christians thought of themselves not as as a, a localized movement, but part of an international coalition. Already in Mark, our earliest Gospel, It can speak of Christianity going to all the nations. 
and Paul um, begins several of his letters speaking of a singular church in many cities or throughout the world. Um, so clearly at this point, Christians understand themselves as an international movement, a singular body spread across the world. And it was comparatively easy for this to happen in light of Pax Romana, the fact that there was relative peace and stability throughout the empire, the building of roads. It was actually pretty easy for people of even limited financial means to travel. We have a lot of records of early Christians traveling for the purpose of planting churches or mutually encouraging each other. Um, Paul is the obvious example of this. But, um, you know, Galatians, Peter, who is clearly based out of Jerusalem for the first part of uh, his ministry, we find him in Antioch. So Peter's clearly on the move. We have early churches uh, sending letters to each other to communicate concerns about polity. First Clement is uh, one of our earliest Christian letters, and it's the Roman church has, has, has heard about this problem in Corinth and is offering instructions on polity to them. So clearly there's quite a bit of communication happening between Rome and Corinth. Michael B. Thompson in the volume The Gospel for All Christians, which is inspired, sort of takes its prompting from Bauckham's article, has a chapter called The Holy Internet, Communication Between Churches in the First Christian Generation, uh, which outlines how works crossed, crossed the Roman Empire. The fact that we have copies of Irenaeus, which was written in France, possibly ten within 10 years, already showing up in Egypt. These are not small, isolated Christian communities, but networks that send letters and other pieces of literature back and forth with obvious success. Yeah. So let's talk about some objections to, to, to Bauckham's argument. Uh, this, th this essay has not been accepted uh, with total reserve, as we indicated at the beginning of this. So let's talk about uh, one of Bauckham's better-known uh, opponents on this subject, mm -hmm. and that's Margaret Mitchell. Margaret Mitchell, a few years after the original essay came out, wrote a reply to this, uh, about patristic evidence for the existence of gospel communities. I highly recommend you read this essay. Uh, the first half is more just sort of a generalized critique of Bauckham's essay. It's really solid. One thing that she points out in that is the fact that gospels that eventually came to be seen as heretical were often identified by authors in terms of their audience and not by their authors. So the gospel to the Egyptians, for the Hebrews, there's another one too. Of the Egyptians, of the Nazarenes, yeah. of the Hebrews. Right. Uh, it's not totally clear that this is audience in view. Um, and not place of origin. Yeah, yeah. place of origin. Would, for instance, the um, the users of the Gospel of Egyptians have referred to it as such, or is this a term that was applied to it by other Christians saying this is the gospel that the Egyptians use? The origin of these texts are really difficult. It's hard to build much of an argument off of this. Right. But the the second half of her essay is an answer to, to Bauckham's claim that the idea of gospel communities was not a concept until the 19th century. And what she argues is that actually the concept of gospel communities uh, arises very early in extent throughout the patristic era. Papias's uh, testimonies about the origins of the gospels all really center on the idea of these gospel communities that Matthew it wrote down this the story of Jesus in Hebrew for Jewish Christians, that uh, Mark, an associate of Peter, wrote down things he remembered from Peter because he was asked by the Roman Christians to do this. And this tradition of apostles or associates of apostles being asked by their localized churches to write down the story of Jesus for them is really handed down without question by several prominent Christian writers. Uh, Clement repeats this idea, Irenaeus repeats this idea, Origen repeats this idea. It's not that unusual for a patristic author to make some reference to the idea of a gospel community centered around an apostolic witness. So clearly the idea that 
gospel communities were not invented until the 19th century is not true. <laughs> right. So Mitchell is probably right that Bauckham overstated his case. Um, it's not completely a modern invention. But Bauckham rightly responds that patristic claims about the authorship of the gospels is probably not credible. It's probably not believable. For instance, Papias says uh, Matthew was composed in Hebrew, and we know this isn't the case. Matthew is using, working from Greek, uh, the Greek copy of Mark's gospel, and clearly writing in Greek. Bauckham points out Papias and other people who are making these links of the gospels to apostolic traditions aren't doing this in order to explain features in the gospels. The gospels are interpreted, always interpreted as universally applicable. Rather, they are making these cases in order to defend the apostolic origin of the texts. There's a polemical uh, line being taken here that the four gospels are associated with four figures with apostolic bona fides, and the heretical ones aren't. What we have is not gospels reflecting and addressed to specific communities, telling stories for the purpose of teaching or explaining or re-narrating communal histories, but rather an argument that these are the true gospels because they go back to apostles, which itself is uh, of dubious um, historicity. Right. The fact that patristic authors keep repeating the story about the gospels the, the gospel's origins and specific disciples is not necessarily evidence of its historicity. Right. Um, most people nowadays think that Papias's reconstruction has some major... Another objection raised particularly by Duke's own Joel Marcus and David Sim is the idea that textual families of, uh, of manuscripts is a reflection of gospel communities. To really understand how this argument is supposed to work, you have to go back and read Streeter, where the several textual families are strongly associated with specific geographical locations in continuity with the origins of the Gospels. Unfortunately for this argument, that sort of geographically bound textual transmission is no longer maintained by really anyone working in textual criticism. Rather, what we have is simply a feature of ancient textual transmission. Uh, Plato, Homer, in antiquity, you can stematize and create families of textual traditions, and that doesn't necessarily reflect sectarian groups transmitting texts in a communal way. So, for instance, the Western text, which is a Syrio-Latin text, it's, a, it's witnessed to by the old Syriac, old Latin Gospels and Codex Beze. This obviously is geographically far apart and doesn't reflect a specific community transmitting a text within themselves. Furthermore, the Alexandrian text is no longer what Westcott and Hort meant by an Alexandrian revision. It's no longer a text specific to Egypt, but rather what they refer to as the neutral text. It's, it's the conservative text that more or less reflects, or more or less faithfully reflects the Ausgang's text. This use of the textual transmission doesn't take into account how people understand um, New Testament text criticism today. It's worth noting that even this notion of families, the Western and the Alexandrian and the Byzantine text, as I've just represented it, is itself not accepted by many text critics, who would instead say we have a more and less faithful groupings of textual transmission and with no geographical reference whatsoever. The argument for text families as evidence of communal documents is is itself a pretty dated argument. Yeah. Um, the last and I think the most compelling part about the idea of gospel communities is the, the evidence of local details. So local details are 
elements of the Gospels that are hard to explain outside of the existence of a fairly localized community. So a really good example of this is Simon of Cyrene in, uh, in Mark 15. Simon of Cyrene is, of course, the man who carries Jesus's cross, and he is introduced by way of his sons, that he has two sons named Rufus and Alexander. We don't know who Rufus and Alexander are. We have no other records of who these people might be. Uh, they're not described in any greater detail than that, just Rufus and Alexander, which seems as though, th this seems to mean that Mark's readers would know who these people are, and Mark would be able to introduce them without, without comment, uh, sure. knowing that they would know who they are. Uh, when, uh, when Matthew and Luke use Mark themselves in their Gospels, uh, Rufus and Alexander are not present anymore. So this seems to indicate that Matthew and Luke don't know who Rufus and Alexander are, just mm -hmm. like we don't anymore, and they drop the reference. Um, so this is, I agree, probably the strongest argument for some sort of local audience in mind. Um, but it's worth noting that having local details that you know some of your readers will understand and some won't is not at all incompatible with targeting a broad, indefinite audience. So, to pick an analogy, Plato, scholars generally agreed, Plato's dialogues target a popular readership with an open-ended or indefinite audience. Um, reportedly, Plato is aware that his works were circulating outside of his native polis, um, including Sicily, Corinth, and Arcadia, within his lifetime. And yet, um, simply perusing a prosopography of Plato's works shows that these clearly fictional dialogues recount local figures, for instance, Aristodemus uh, in the Symposium, who were, by Plato's old, own confession, rather insignificant people, yet reappear in casual references in, in Xenophon, uh, his memorabilia, he mentions the same figure. So what we have here is an illusion that only locals would have recognized, that still appears in works that we have reason to believe the author thought would, would circulate beyond where anyone would know this illusion. So local color appearing in works that are with a broader audience in mind. I also wonder if a subset of the local details argument is the issue of anachronism. And this is particularly relevant in John that th there's uh, multiple references in the Gospel of John to this idea of aposynagogus, which is the, the act of expelling someone from a synagogue. It shows up in John 9, 12, and 16. The idea that in Jesus's own lifetime, uh, there were synagogues that were organized enough that you could expel somebody, and also that the idea of a worshiper of Christ was so widespread that it would be grounds for uh, excommunication is extremely unlikely. It is hard to explain uh, these repeated references to the expulsion from the synagogue idea outside some sense that this seems to be traced back to a concern that John and his audience might be dealing with, even if it's not necessarily native to the historical tradition. Uh, J. Louis Martin is the the author who is particularly famous for, for drawing attention to these issues in uh, his book, uh, Theology and History in the Fourth Gospel. So how does that play into reading Bauckham? as a specific or global address. Well, Bauckham is, um, Bauckham is very much responding to people like Martin right. in his text, that he he doesn't like the idea of uh, trying to reconstruct gospel communities from the text. And I think that J. Louis Martin is a pretty powerful uh, argument against this, that you, you, you know, when you look at John... Uh, and you see the ahistorical details, it's really like it, it, it begs interpretation. And I think it's, it's very natural for people to say, you know, this has to go back to a community. This has to be something that we can reconstruct from early Christian history in light of the fact that we can't trace this back to Jesus' own lifetime. Right. So we'll need to do another episode on J. Lou Martin and Raymond Brown's it's a little teaser yeah, for that. Yeah. use of the 
Birkat Hamanim to, to explain these Alposynagogos passages. But setting that aside for the moment, uh, I agree that clearly we have here, or I think there's a really strong case to be made that we have here the circumstances of the community and especially just the concerns of the community influencing how John writes his narrative about Jesus. I don't think that's incompatible with understanding John as a gospel written for all Christians, sure. that he would um, think it's relevant for Christians outside of his own community to understand that Jesus, or to believe at least that Jesus uh, predicted persecution from enemies and that Jesus was in some way set, borrowing John's own language here, was some way set against, quote, the, the, the Jews um, or the Judeans, another issue for another day. And so John can both reflect his own community and be writing for a broader audience, concert things that he thought should be of concern for Christian for all Christians, to borrow right. Bauckham's language. Yeah. One thing that Ian and I both object then is Bauckham's tendency to conflate the issue of are gospels written for parochial communities and are is there exegetical significance in a gospel community? And I think most of us would be more sympathetic to the uh, the former objection than the latter objection. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. I hope you'll listen in next month for yeah. another author. We had some teasers in there for future episodes. Yeah. So. Please leave us a review, either commensurate with the quality of your listening experience or exercising the sort of grace of which you hope to be the recipient. You can write to us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com or find us at Twitter at newt, and E-W-T, review.